cue up that M83. It's self-discovery time in honor of Demolition, a movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal you may not know is actually coming out this week. What is an actually good middle-aged white guy finding himself movie? I'm, I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Jaws, which I guess you could say is a shark movie and everything, but whatever. It's about a, a man learning to find himself on the open waters. I'm Matt Patches, and despite Terrence Malick's last movie bombing, in our opinion, uh, see that review, uh, I'm going to go with The Tree of Life, a poem. Also, in the uh, in regards to its box office, Terrence Malick lost the uh, golden touch, huh? Anyway. <laughs> Looks like he's going to have to do... Uh, <laughs> Christian Bale versus Ben Affleck in, uh, to the wonder dawn of justice. Marvel's going to come a calling. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich, and only because I watched it three times last week while I was doing nothing else, uh, I'm going to go with The Aviator because uh, show me the blueprints. Show me all the blueprints. Show Way the future. Show me, show me all the blueprints. Way the future. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good. Then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 113 for Wednesday, April 6, 2016. Did you know that on this day in 1896, the first modern Olympic Games were held in Athens, Greece? Wow, what a what a century and change it's been. Um, <laughs> Meanwhile, it's very cold where we are. No summer Olympics here. It's true, so cold. Um, not cold, though, are some of your iTunes reviews, which we're still really glad to have. David, what do we got? Uh, we got some nice ones. We, what do we got here? Uh, a personal endorsement is the best review, says Marcus330. Alex from New Jersey here. I guess his name is not Marcus. I've been towing with writing a clever <laughs> review filled with pop culture references that will dazzle and impress my favorite podcasting per- crew. However, I recently just tried to talk a film-loving friend into giving you guys a chance, and I thought, what better review is there than a personal appeal straight from the heart? So here's what I said to him. I strongly recommend that you jump into Fighting in the War Room. They put out two eps a week. One is a three-topic general discussion that talks trends, reactions, and news while occasionally dipping into TV. The other ep is a review episode dedicated to the major release that week. It features a rotating crew of four film critics, Matt Patches, David Ehrlich, Dave Gonzalez, Katie Rich. Sometimes all four are on, but all four aren't always in every episode, which helps keep a roving dynamic. Hmm. Mm. Uh, occasionally, guest critics like Jordan Hoffman, ugh. Or Joanna Robinson. (laughs) Come on as well. It's a great mix, and they all have interesting and unique perspectives. I really think that it's not just the best film podcast out there, but possibly the best podcast on iTunes. Wow. Fuck you, billions. Says Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Uh, And as someone who listens to 62 weekly or monthly podcasts. What What the hell? 62. He does, does not it, say that lightly. This does is, this guy this is have a rich. commute from hell or something? <laughs> he must. I even wrote them in on the AV Club's user poll for top podcasts of 2015. They were inexplicably left off the ballot. I didn't Side even note. know I was supposed to be mad about that, but I'm Fuck mad Fuck you, now. AV Club. Yeah, but thank <laughs> you. you next. Thank you, not they Marcus. Have a podcast? Their podcast is shit. Anyway. Wow. <laughs> back to Marcus slash Alex. You are not truly <laughs> engaging with the medium of film. Until you are doing so while listening to Fighting in the War Room regularly. Ignore the recommendation at your own peril. 
That now, might be the, the re- best review we've ever got. I like the these. review ends there, but we don't know if the friend tuned in. Oh, yeah. that's true. Well, Cliffhanger. This is the end of The Walking we'll Dead see. all over again. <laughs> uh, we will see. We're all on the uh, edges of our seats. And I actually, I would rather save the lovely review we have from a gentleman named Jeffrey Malone uh, for next week, because what could top? Well, and I like how that review turned you into Bernie Sanders, just with how emphatic you were about reading everything. The best podcast on iTunes. (laughs) Thank you, George Steinbrenner. I got to work. I got to work on my Bernie, but yeah, we'll get there. Doing what I can. The primary season's got a while to go yet. Uh, So yeah, please keep leaving us reviews on iTunes. We will read them. We may read them in the voices of various famous politicians, but I I don't know. I'm not up for a Trump impression on this podcast. I don't know about you guys. Maybe we'll just leave that. I don't understand the Trump impression. What is his, what is it, New York? Is it, you're fired, you're fired. I mean. Your podcast, we like it. Well, everyone write <laughs> in and let us know if you like Thatcher's uh, Donald Trump impression. And uh, thank and you let again. let me tell you. What? Believe you're me. a bunch of losers. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, any Donald Trump impression really is rooted in the um, asides that he makes to fill the dead air in his complete lack of intelligent thought. <laughs> the, by the way, I can tell you that. You know, this is politics yeah. out of this pop culture. Yeah, but podcast. this is supposed to be the segment where we talk about positive this reviews. Is, listen, that hardly even a political comment. I'm purely talking about the the man's uh, speech patterns, his eloquence. Well, or if you're talking about The Apprentice or his cameo in Home Alone Two, then we can talk Bo- about both. Donald I Trump. could argue are political statements as well. Uh, but let's let's <laughs> move on with the show. Let's uh, yeah, let's have a show, and uh, you guys can write us in about your thoughts on uh, the politics of Home Alone Two. I don't make love, baby, we make magic. Come home with a thug, let's get back and always well. Baby, cause happen. She leave the back seat just in the magnum. Hopped out the magnum, hopped in the tray just to let the top back and thank God for the day. Who gives a f- what a hater gotta say? I made a couple million dollars last year dealing still in the streets. So I haven't seen The Boss, which is the basically the only major new release coming out this week. It's been a, it's a weirdly slow period between superhero tent poles, it feels like. Um, and David, you haven't seen The Boss either. Uh, but Matt Patches did. He saw The Boss for Our Sins. Um, I I don't know. Like I like True Beverly Hills, and that's kind of what this movie looked like. But then the more I saw trailers, the less interest I had in it. Actually, can you expand on that thought before we dig into what the boss actually is? Because I've seen multiple people talk about Troop Beverly Hills when discussing the boss. And other than the appearance of some, uh, you know, Girl Scouts, I don't really get that. What's the vibe of Troop Beverly Hills? Well, Troop Beverly Hills is just like a silly, like, I don't know, it's like a 90s comedy about a woman who is put in charge of a Girl Scout troop who doesn't who doesn't that, know what she's doing. And that's, but I don't know, I haven't seen The Boss, but that's what it seems to be Katie's like. I think that Katie's comment is rooted more in the abysmal trailer that they cut for this movie. Yes. Um, which is all the movie that I've seen, and I also get a strong, uh, the same vibe. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the trailer, it's, it's, not only was it ubiquitous and before, like, every movie that you might go with your family to see over Christmas break, but... Uh, just even like the sound mix of the trailer reeked of amateur. <laughs> I mean, like this is something that I, I'm not uh, multiple brown notes as somehow. far up my own ass as some other people believe that I am. This is not something the sound mixes and trailers and whatnot. Not something that I regularly take to task. Uh, and you know, best case scenario, don't even notice. But the amateurishness with which this trailer was coming together just had that stink on it. They're like, that is a disaster coming five miles away. Patches. Yeah, is it? Was, was, uh, was it? 
Well, like Tammy, I wouldn't totally just dismiss the Tammy boss. being not... the last movie that Melissa McCarthy made in collaboration with her husband, Ben Falcone. Yes, correct, which did quite well at the box office, but I don't know anyone who, in the real world, who saw it. So I'm not sure. If you saw Tammy, congrats. Uh, that was a very strange, that was like a Sundance movie uh, blown up into a studio comedy uh, with a mix of the kind of pathos, mother-daughter pathos, and, uh, and, and the broad comedy that Melissa McCarthy has become known for. The boss is much broader and much more straight comedy. Um, and yeah, I, I guess the Troop Beverly Hills thing... If it's if it's about ladies being crazy, then that's what the boss is all about. It's really just Melissa McCarthy and Kristen Bell and a little Peter, a little Peter Dinklage. I guess that sounds oh, wrong. Boy. Um, and some Peter Dinklage <laughs> and Kristen Shaw doing on SNL. I did not. Oh, I thought he was on SNL for Game of Thrones. I think he was. Yeah, he's complete. I, if I remember correctly, and I tried not to, uh, he is completely absent from the trailers. Uh, well, he, yeah, no one has a very big part in this movie because it really is erratic and has no script. So it kind of kicks off. Melissa McCarthy is this woman, Michelle Darnell, and she's a super CEO. She's gonna, you know, she goes to concert halls and stadiums and gives presentations like she's some Steve Jobs on steroids or something, uh, sharpshooter. She's gonna tell you how to, you know, uh, gonna whip your business into shape. And everyone adores her, and she's a billionaire, and she gets caught for insider trading. Kristen Bell plays her assistant, and when she gets out of jail, she has nowhere to go. So she shacks up with uh, Kristen Bell and her Kristen Bell's daughter and tries to get herself, her life, back in motion. Um, but the, the tone is so weird. Like, in the beginning, it could be a Will Ferrell movie, you know, just a crazy character who's going to be doing all sorts of crazy things because she has billions of dollars. And there's a whole movie there where she just spends money and has crazy... Richie Rich uh, for grown-ups. Yes, exactly. Richie Rich for grown-ups. I nope, watched that but movie. she gets thrown into jail. So maybe it's going to be like she goes to jail and it's going to be a wacky movie. Like, nope, nope, she gets out of jail in like two seconds. So maybe, maybe it's going to be about her, you know, being down in the dumps and learning what normal people without billions of dollars... No, no. She starts a new business pretty quickly and is back... In, in the financial world, facing off against Peter Dinklage, this guy, Renault, who is obsessed with uh, like Japanese uh, yeah, Japanese swords and the way, the Zen way and all that stuff. And uh, Wait, they also have a relationship. And so there's a romantic <laughs> angle <laughs> to Melissa McCarthy and Peter Dinklage. It's all so crazy. And then, of course, as you've seen in the trailers, they loop in the Girl Scouts. The Girl Scouts are going to become these soldiers for Michelle Darnell and her uh, brownie business that Kristen Bell jumps in on, too. And the movie just it feels like it starts half an hour in when it finally figures out, OK, what is this movie going to be about? OK, it's going to be about a business getting off the ground. But then it, it, it can't decide if it's wacky or if it... Um, if it's more like some of Melissa McCarthy's other, or if it's like a Gilmore Girls movie almost, you know, you want this kind of female relationship, uh, friendship brewing from a work relationship. It could be something that's really down to earth. But no, in the middle of the movie, Melissa McCarthy and a bunch of Girl Scouts have this brawl that's kind of like the Anchorman. And that's uh, been in brawl. a lot of the trailers. And it's so weird and out of place and violent. I mean, the boss is hard R. Uh, really... <clears throat> crude language, a lot of violence, weird violence, uh, and sexual innuendo, just really crass stuff. It's There's this one joke where 
Michelle Darnell is going back to her old country club, and she's going to try and get back in it with the millionaires, the old white dudes that she was uh, rubbing shoulders with originally. And she goes back to their table, and they want nothing to do with her. And she starts screaming at one guy. Or no, he, she, she says, how's your wife? And he's like, my wife's dead. And when she gets angry, she just starts ripping in him like, your wife is dead, and she's burning in hell. And, and she's what? screwing everyone. She's screwing the devil himself. And she's just uh, going on so and on about this character- man's is, dead wife. Is this, is this a character, or is it just like... But Melissa McCarthy doing weird stuff from well, scene no, to scene. Well, no, it doesn't. It also doesn't well, seem it's, that it's extreme. a character that she started in the Groundlings, I believe. I mean, like this is a character who is, from what I can, what I'm, what I've read, is near and dear to her heart. Well, uh, it's weird because it's it's less of a character than the one she played in Identity Thief. That's this kind of like Southern con woman. That's oh my god, more I totally forgot her. about this, that movie. This feels just like Melissa McCarthy doing Melissa McCarthy stuff, which would be fine if it was Melissa McCarthy, but now she has billions of dollars, or now she's going to claw her way back to the top. It's just so schizophrenic now, is and there strange. Anything, is there anything Trump-like about her character? Because that seems to be... Wow, I mean, again with the may, politics. Well, no, I mean, well, no may, it's definitely it there. inadvertent, but I mean, it's hard to avoid when she rides down on like the wings of a golden, you know, hideously tacky eagle into her speeches and talks about being the richest woman in America. And she even has the hair for it, really. Well, I think that's what's interesting in the beginning. And maybe it's the climate that does that contextualizes it in that way. But you're kind of expecting her to be Trump-like, more egotistical or more in any direction, I guess, because she she herself is schizophrenic. She can be really normal in one scene and then she can be, you know, egotistical and and trump-like just shouting she's, at people she's not actually schizophrenic though <laughs> no well you know in the fan fiction i'm writing about the boss she is oh i can't wait um, for that yeah sounds like a valuable valuable use of your time <laughs> but i'm just like i'll be interested to see how the boss does the box office of people really kind of just is melissa mccarthy our biggest star will anyone <laughs> will we see anything that she's in um i mean i on some I, level I did enjoy the boss. There's some there's some funny bits, but it, they're few and far between, and it becomes so yeah the the relationship. It's so such an angry movie. That's what I wasn't expecting. Like I like Melissa McCarthy, and maybe it's Gilmore Girls' fault that I just expect her to kind of be have a sweetness to almost everything she does, even if it's running under you know if it has to be carved away at until we find it in the very end. But I feel like Michelle Darnell does not change. Truly, yeah. it changes by the mechanics of the movie, and Kristen Bell is kind of the only sweetness in the film. And I guess she, you know, she's a single mom. She finds a guy in the end, or whatever. I mean, I just... think that uh, I, I don't think the movie's going to do particularly well, and it's a convenient opinion to have in advance because if it does do better than expected, you can blame it a little bit at least on the void left by the failure of Batman v Superman. Uh, I think that the, this weekend, I mean, Jungle Book. Is that's next weekend? So yeah, yeah there's I mean, nothing else. This, this there's weekend nothing was right left now. sort of empty because people were so afraid of Batman v Superman. But after dropping eighty percent last weekend, I mean, the, it, I'm sure Disney wished that they released the Jungle Book now. Um, no, I mean, there's but, nothing else coming out. Like Disney's fine. Yeah, uh, they'll be fine. Anyway, uh, the the point that I'm trying to make is that I think uh, she is Melissa McCarthy continues to be, uh, and Tammy sort of began to set this train in motion. The poster child of the fact that we don't make movie stars anymore. I mean, they're really no better than the brand they create. And she and Paul Feig have a certain mojo together where you understand what it is they're going for. And the yeah. movies that she makes with her husband fail. Identity Thief, unfortunately, makes uh, is, is a dense this argument a little bit. But I think that you can see it 
uh, with so many movie stars these days who are not actually movie stars. Uh, when Melissa McCarthy, who Patches is tempted to say could potentially be our biggest star, which I think is a reach, but I understand where he's coming from. Um, if Second she can't to Leo. really open, right? Yeah, Leo. Again, I maintain that he. Tom Cruise never tries. I mean, Tom Cruise never tries to do something that's not part of a brand. And I guess Edge of Tomorrow was the closest thing he's gotten recently, and that underwhelmed, but still did okay. Uh, but yeah, other than Leo, I, I, I really think that you look at Melissa McCarthy and you see yet another very famous person who is not a movie star, and a movie like this is, I think, uh, probably going to reaffirm that. Well, Identity Thief made a lot of money. A lot of money. But that was yeah, also the first big movie she was in after Bridesmaids. So the uh, pattern had not yet established itself, maybe. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, just to wrap up here, I think the boss's biggest failure is being incoherent on, like, a script level and a direction level. And Tammy was a mess for the same reason. Really well-intentioned. There was something there. Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone were using their powers for good. Let's make a comedy that has... A, an actual emotional current to it and it was totally mishandled they didn't know how to make a movie it was their first movie and it was just way too big i think for although them. tammy and, made 84 84 million dollars oh no it, it did, did well but it's a poor it's a poor work of filmmaking and it, i guess it's just a testament to something like what paul feig does when he's teaming up with melissa mccarthy to speak to what david just said i mean this movie the minor action scenes are just idiotic. There's the whole, the end of the movie without anywhere to go, no, without any way to wrap up Michelle Darnell's climb back to fame or her come up with Chris Abel, you know, stages this infiltration plot. Suddenly it's going to be a heist movie in the last act with Chris Abel and uh, Tyler Labine, who's in this movie for some reason, uh, back from his Hulu show that no one's watching, I think. And, um, yeah, they break into Peter Dinklage's office and have a big fight. It's just so weird, and it needs to go big, big, big. That seems to be their ambition as filmmakers. Like, let's spend every dollar we could possibly get out of a studio. Let's have helicopters and sword fights, and, like, it's going to be crazy. It's like, what? No, this movie does not need this. This And, and maybe it would have if it you know, was the movie that started in the first 10 minutes, which was all about excess and this crazy Trump-like character. But nope, it's none of those movies. Well, it's not a very the movie. Melissa McCarthy as Donald Trump movie, I would on, I would see that. So maybe that's next. Somehow. That sounds funny. Yeah. Well, Ghostbusters Blu-ray, will be a very interesting edition. comparison. I mean, it's a, being a franchise, it's really different and hard to compare. But if uh, they've got that Paul Feig magic again, who knows? It, it Ghostbusters, I don't think, is going to be an interesting comparison. I think Ghostbusters is Ghostbusters and it's going to make a shit ton of money. Uh, well, and will have more, no bearing I meant on more what Melissa McCarthy does next. Yeah, I meant more in terms of like the what we like Melissa McCarthy doing and sure. how she's Well, hopefully Ghostbusters, like the boss, has very long jokes uh-huh. about playing with bra straps in each other's boobs. <laughs> because if two ladies are in a scene together, they should probably play with each other's boobs. It's only right. Sure. There is a show on TV about which I've come to care. Premises to people who are nude and kind of scared. Dropped into the wild and the task is to survive And there's no prize at the end, it's just congrats, you're still alive I have to make a confession Naked and afraid's my new obsession One man and one woman trying to prove that they are tough From the comfort of my home, I simply cannot get enough 
So I wanted to talk about this tonight because uh, my favorite garbage TV show, Southern Charm, has returned to Bravo. I'm pretty sure no one but me and one of my random coworkers watches it. Everyone I know in South Carolina, which is where it takes place, says they are too embarrassed to watch it because it brings shame upon the state. And they're probably right. What is it? It is like it's a Bravo style reality show about a bunch of people living in Charleston. And uh, one of the major characters is the son of a very prominent South Carolina politician. And he had been a prominent South Carolina politician until he was arrested on drug charges and now has had two children out of wedlock with like a 22 year old. Um, and yeah, there's like real life drama and then all of the manufactured like wine throwing dinner party Bravo drama. And it's the only, I don't watch housewives or Vanderpump or anything like this is the only one of these shows I've gotten sucked into. Uh, but I love it. And I remembered that during our quarter call a few weeks ago, uh, David's fiance and Lisa came on and talked about all of the garbage television that he watches. And I, I thought it was supposed to be a nice time to uh, talk about what we watch on TV that we know has no redeeming artistic value, but we love anyway. David, what's the crap that you watch? Uh, well, I think some of the crap that I watched that was cited on the show includes Vanderpump Rules, which is uh, another Bravo reality it's a show. It's a spinoff, to be clear. It is a spinoff. Did, uh, did you watch the Housewives? Did you watch the Housewives or did you just go into no, Vanderpump? No, I have no interest in the Housewives, uh, but I love these young, dumb morons who <laughs> work in this <laughs> fucking restaurant. You can't imagine why anyone would choose to work in this place other than uh, necessity, but they really. Or to be on television. Uh, yeah, no, but I, I, I watched, they had an episode a few weeks ago that uh, really, quite candidly, surprisingly candidly, uh, looked into the making of the first season, which was a few years ago now, and it really tapped at the root of what the show offers for me and, and its appeal. But I think it's great. Uh, I really enjoy it. Dating Naked was the other show that I think she, <laughs> she signed, which uh, is fun, because I miss, I miss, like, Next and tail daters and sort of the glory days oh, of MTV yeah. dating shows. No, there were some really um, well, not even MTV like syndicated dating shows like that would come on at one in the morning. Oh sure, yeah. No, I mean those were great too. Uh, I know like uh, the one with the smiley faces where they're like cho- to go on two dates and they have to. Yeah. I can't remember what it's called. Is there one where um, they go on dates with each other's parents or something? Well, that was on MTV, and that was awful. I hated that okay. one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, like, like, Room Raiders was the worst. The oh, very, very Room Raiders! Yes, Wait, why do I like Room Raiders? Who like gives it. a fuck what you find in somebody's room? And it was also... Sick! I mean, they were all a bit staged, but it was like, who cares? It's, I, I want to see... Next was really the perfect formula. It's like, it, it, it rubbed their narcissism and in their faces. It also... It, it was geared towards... Uh, essentially muting all social niceties. I mean, the moments when someone would come out of the bus and immediately <laughs> someone would look at them. I mean, it's the cruelness is unparalleled. Uh, I guess Tinder takes a little air out of it all. I it, mean, you couldn't reboot it, it in this era. I mean, Tinder, it is swiping left, essentially, in but front in front of the person. Yeah. Um, and on television. I mean, they, they're really ahead of the curve with that one. Um, sad to see it gone. Uh, uh, Patches, how about you? What's the garbage you're watching? You know, I don't I don't think I watch too much garbage. Oh, I've been Well, so I've been Well, Michelle's made me watch RuPaul's Drag Race, which I quite enjoy. Um I don't know if that, I don't know if that crosses the, the garbage line. Like that seems like culturally important enough to uh, not be garbage. It is and like now the guests are getting bigger. And I don't know if that somehow makes it trashier because they're totally clueless. Like this week's episode had um, Chanel Iman and Gigi Haddad on it. Hadid. But they don't get what oh, Hadid, sorry. Uh, and they don't get it. Like they don't get drag and they don't get what this culture is and they don't understand the impersonations that 
these guys are are doing on stage, and it's just fantastic. And but RuPaul is the just gets drag. I get drag. I get drag. <laughs> That's your brand. When you watch RuPaul's Drag Race, you start getting drag. Um, okay. I think it's Fair fantastic. Enough. But then. What I've really been watching is I was back and forth if I should dig through Hulu and watch old seasons of Survivor or old seasons of Top Chef. Now, these are not trashy shows necessarily, but I think if you go back and watch, like I'm watching season eight, the all-star season of Top Chef. Yeah, you're like um, so far you know, removed like, from the cultural conversation around it. Yes, everyone knows who won, and I have no idea because I, I just missed out. I don't know. So, like, I'm watching Richard Blaze cook with nitrogen. And I'm like, ooh, odd. Ah, everyone, you know, Michelle's sitting next to me. How do you have the time to do, like, like how do you have the time to watch Dating Naked? Yeah, well, this I, is, I, I this don't, is Dating exactly Naked, it. by the way, is like 10, by the way, I said like Donald Trump again. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, is like 10 weeks a year. It's once, once a week only. It's not exactly the sort of thing you like revisit and binge watch. Uh, but I. You know, I have trouble keeping up with the the two new shows that I watch, let alone sitting down and being like, I'm going to watch season eight of Top Show. No, but this is the well, whole the point thing. of just, garbage oh. is that like yeah. once you've cooked a dinner and you're like, OK, I want to go to bed in like 45 minutes. So I'm not going to start anything that I care about. Oh, are the, are the Property Brothers on? OK, I'm going to watch that. Right. This is how I've watched a lot of Property Brothers. When you don't want to invest, there is television for you and it does serve a purpose. And, and now I, I kind of want to get into we had a writer on Thrillist, right? Or she watched every episode, and it's, okay, 13 episodes of this Canadian reality show called Party Mamas. Have you heard of it? <laughs> no. It is the, like, sludge on the bottom of Hulu. <laughs> and I watched one episode, and it is complete garbage, and I should watch more. But Hulu describes it as a jam-packed, nerve-filled, triple latte-paced ride through the lives of outrageous and energetic mothers who pull out all the stops to throw, quote, the best party ever for their little darlings. Oh, uh, yeah, so our, it's not like moms uh, behaving writer, badly. Yeah. It's like competitive momness. Yes, exactly. So it's kind of like Sweet Sixteen, Super Sweet Sixteen meets Real Housewives. And they're throwing parties for like three-year-olds? Yeah, and complete <laughs> shit. It is complete <laughs> shit. And uh, so if people are looking for trash, I might direct you to Party Mamas. And Hulu is just a treasure trove of these types of imported reality shows. So go at it. Wow. All right. Well, we've given you lots of recommendations for complete nonsense to watch while... Uh, then the break between the people versus OJ and Game of Thrones, which is going to be a, a tough couple weeks. Open up a beer and you say get over here and play a video game. I'm in his favorite sundress, watching me get undressed, take that body downtown. I see you the bestest, leaning for a big kiss, put his favorite perfume on, go play a video game. All right, this weekend sees the release of, I guess, a tinier movie, although it might be coming out in a theater near you. Semi-wide release, is that a thing? Uh, it might be for Hardcore Henry, the debut film, I believe, from this guy, Ilya Nyashuler. Um It is produced by, oh, God. Timur Ekmabedov. <laughs> can't say it uh abraham lincoln vampire hunter auteur yes and it makes perfect sense because it is very wanted-esque i think wanted toyed with ideas that we see in video games with uh speed ramping and shoot 'em ups and that sort of thing and now hardcore henry is just a straight up first person video game 
but we're watching it, right? So it's a guy running around shooting people, being yelled at by Charlotte Copley, um, and trying to survive this predicament that he's in that starts, you know, he's he's being experimented on and he's taken into the sky. It's kind of uh, like Bioshock for two seconds. And there's superpowers and there's plenty of guns and there's don't, spies don't Bi- and there's Bioshock soldiers. does not deserve to be brought into this conversation. <laughs> that is true. That is just, that is just rude. Oh, I did not care for Arca Henry at all. We, David and I saw this at a late screening at the Toronto Film Festival last year when it was just called Hardcore. It has since played at the South by or South by Southwest Festival under Hardcore Henry. And now it is making its way to theaters um, and really trying to garner buzz from this first person perspective as if this is kind of revolutionary this i guess doing the entire movie in this fashion um is is somewhat revolutionary it's not quite found footage it's just first person just like a video game but well, I and so this turn, is not no. first person movies have happened before like there was a right, uh, lady, lady in the, in the lake, lake. uh is, is the obvious one. Which my film professors refused to make us watch in its entirety because they said it was unbearable, so we just watched clips of it. It is, yeah. And it also, um, you know, and there have been bits that have uh, been borrowed in other films, like Doom. Uh, it's a terrible movie, but I think fans were excited at the idea of appropriating the Doom POV from the video games for one yeah. sequence. I believe the uh, Maniac remake. Yes, you're right, with the, the Elijah Wood movie, yeah. So why uh, is Hardcore Henry... <laughs> Because it's filmed with go, it's it's much. The finally, the technology has sort of caught up with the idea, at least in theory. It's filmed entirely on GoPro threes. Uh, they strap them everywhere you would imagine you could, and it sort of really puts you in the the ostensibly puts you in the action uh, in a way that a first person approach could not have before. I mean, you see Henry's arms going out of the side of the screen. I mean, they couldn't more literally approximate a video game first-person shooter viewpoint. Uh, and because of how small the camera is now, and they have this custom rig that they made where it's essentially attached to the stunt guy's face and such, uh, they, it's like you are in it. It's all these things are happening, and, and uh, you will often find yourself reaching for the pause button. <laughs> or yeah, hitting uh, A but, rapidly to try and get but, through this cut scene so that I could actually engage with the material for two seconds, yeah. um, which will never be the case because yeah, for ninety minutes you're watching this guy punch and kick and jump and drive cars and um, that's that's really it. The story is not even worth going into because it follows absolutely no logic. It follows video game logic where suddenly a character can be shooting electricity out of his hands or you can fall from a helicopter onto a, the top of a, a roof and you'll be fine and you're just going to keep running and doing other stuff. It is a game except you don't get to play. Um, and I think what's interesting about it, if, uh, if there's a silver lining Is here, that we can finally say a movie... Is like a video game. I mean, people, critics have been saying <laughs> yeah. that for 20 years, and it's always been such that, a lazy slag. And now, but finally, don't they usually say it about editing? Or I guess it's mu- music video editing. Right, right, yeah. right. Video but, game I mean, special effects. Finally, we have a movie where somebody can say that to you, and you have to just be like, oh, all right, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> like, yeah, that's exactly what they're going for. And on some level, I'm, I'm glad we reached this point because we can finally say like what what really works what can we take away from video games and what 
can't we take away? Uh, what 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 is the line that we should draw between these two mediums? And what you know, Roger Ebert famously knocked video games for not being art, and video game people cannot shut up about uh, that quote. Are they still um, they mad about that? Oh, everyone still makes fun of that so much. Wow, uh, it's hilarious. But fighting with a dead man, classy. <laughs> oh wait, that was recently. Uh, R.I.P. Roger <laughs> Ebert. Uh, but like, so so, I turn it to you guys. But with one caveat, um, or with one uh, additional annotation here, that I, I had the chance to speak to Dan Trachtenberg about Cloverfield, and we had a really interesting discussion about how he was really influenced by video games making 10 Cloverfield Lane, not necessarily movies as much, because he wanted to... Um, you know, track Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character. He wanted it to feel like you were following her and watching her decisions and maybe thinking of what she should do as you're, as she's navigating this space. Um, and he brought up, oh God, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, which, which games, what was the game that had, um, oh, The Last of Us. He really talked about The Last of Us as being a major influence on this movie. And, it reminded me of another conversation I had with Jonah Nolan two years ago when he was still uh, making his oh yes um, during the during the Interstellar campaign um, about when he was making this show for HBO the the Westworld uh, kind of remake series that is still gestating and they're reshooting it right now I think uh, but his major re- uh, reference was Red Dead Redemption. So not mm-hmm. movies. Again, he's going to games, and Bioshock was a big one for him, and mm-hmm. to say it in a favorable way. And I think that's really interesting because you have a guy like J.J. Abrams so clearly uh, indebted to Spielberg, salivating at the Amblin logo, just wants to make those movies. And now I feel like we have a wave of filmmakers who grew up on video games. Maybe that's their touchstone, and they're trying to bring that to the movies. And it, for Ten Cloverfield Lane, I feel like it's a total success. Uh, and I, I get that vibe from the movie well, and that translation. Was, so what can we take from the games and, and what should we leave alone? I was smoking a blunt with, uh, you know, the uh, <laughs> Scorch Trials director, Wes Hall, <laughs> over my apartment the other day. And he was talking about how... Uh, no, Wait, the, the, is, are you being serious trials, or are you making it, fun of me? I'm uh, making fun We're of just you, name but dropping. I am serious about... You I are never the, joke the about greatest the, of name droppers. Come on, let me have my moment here. <laughs> I would never joke about the Scorch Trials. Guys, um, guys, Marty called me the other day, and we were talking yeah. about Skyrim, and it was crazy. Uh, oh, God, Skyrim. <laughs> but the, Bring um, up Skyrim, and you will open the, the can the, of worms, lady. The, I play that shit. Uh, what the fuck is it called? The Scorch Trials. Welcome to The Scorch. That is a movie that is explicitly indebted to The Last of Us, and I think it's a really good example because – and The Last of Us is – very indebted to a lot of movies. I mean, it is sort of this Ouroboros uh, symbiotic relationship. The Last of Us is a better zombie film than almost any zombie film we've ever seen. You just happen to control it from time to time. Um, It happens to be a little bit more interactive, but uh, they're making a movie out of it, and I've been curious for years whether or not they are going to tell the same story again, uh, which I think that is going to be the case, or if they're going to tell a side story. But the zombie story that they tell in that game is so perfect. It's such a little perfect nugget of a of a narrative that it would pour beautifully over to a film. Uh, but I, I like what you're saying because I think that for too long, our idea of what video games are and what they could possibly contribute to cinema has been far too narrow. And I think that Hardcore Henry is god-awful proof of that uh, because what the director here is doing, and Beckman Bantoff, he produced it, and this other guy who has been 
trying to have the same approach in music videos that he's been making for his band biting elbows for years. Um, this is like <laughs> his one, it's like his one thing that he does, uh, which is very embedded also to the prodigy music video for smack my, no, I don't think it was a smack my bitch up video. They used that song in the movie, but I think it was another video that they shot in like 2012. So it was a lot more recent than smack my bitch up. Anyway, um, is that he's trying to just sort of like put the video game on screen. And of course you lose the one thing that makes video games fun in in those video games, which is their interactivity. Uh, Although I was thinking about this today, we live in a culture now that's so bizarrely preoccupied with watching people play video games over Twitch. uh, And it's something that I just don't even begin to understand. I always want to have a controller in my hand and play that uh, maybe there is some appeal to that group of people but in this, but I the, think there's so isn't much. Isn't the appeal of that? I mean, I I think I am one of those people. Growing up, I certainly was. I could sit down, and I could watch my dumb friend play. Who cares? A video game, and um, I think it has to do with watching them fail, um, watching them attempt to get navigate through this these Come dangers. Over and watch and me play Dark Souls three when it comes out. You'll uh, have the time of your life. I will. I would get me some for popcorn. Hours upon hours in a row. I mean, I I do that actually. Katie joked about Skyrim. That's exactly what I literally don't even know what Skyrim is, other than that it's a video game. It's a big fantasy. Did you read that role playing game adventure game this morning? Uh, I did read that Skyrim thread, and I found it delightful, even though I have no idea what Skyrim is. So I don't know what that says about video games. It is it is a game where you walk around an enormous continent, running into things like oh. I walk in this shack and the man is dead and there's a dog there, so I'll adopt the dog. And then you go off and do something <laughs> so else. There's no you plot. Do something else. And you so- there's a plot. I mean, you fight a big dragon, you're basically changing time and history forever, but really you're like collecting gold from pots and you're like completing minor missions just for to to kind of traverse this giant continent. I mean, this guy um, managed to participate in like a Dickens novel worth of drama. Uh, so but, I don't know. That sounds fun. But that's what, this. yeah, that's what the game is. You can wander forever and do these things, which is why I find it endlessly watchable because mm-hmm. every scenario is different. You keep gaining new objects. So I could sit down and watch someone play a video game. Totally. Sure. Normal. But it's not, I mean, this, we won't have to go into Roger Ebert's argument about why video games are an art, but a lot of it had to do with, uh, his idea, his understanding, which I don't necessarily share about the control of the player, the, that, that intervention and how, uh, it's not an experience that's being crafted for the user. And Skyrim's like that. But I'm thinking of a lot of older video games that uh, were so cinematic that they they borrowed so liberally from movies and so heavily from movies that they made games more cinematic as a whole. You can think about Metal Gear Solids. You can also think about like the very literal use of full motion video in those old like Sega CD games, like Sewer Shark, things like that. Yep. And, and the relationship between video games and movies goes back, of course, a lot uh, into the past beyond that as well. Uh, but I think there's so much that both mediums can borrow from one another, not just the aesthetic. I mean, not just like, this is what a first-person shooter is like. Because you can make a video game, and people have, that are essentially movies uh, that really limit the control. And they also don't work. So you, it's not just a matter of like porting one experience over to another as easily as you would port a video game from PlayStation 4 to PC. Uh, you know, I think that... I'm trying to think of what other elements we've taken from games to movies that have been less appreciated for their origins in the past. But, I mean, you look at you look at something like, again, like the Scorch Trials, and you see just like just how much it borrowed from The Last of Us and how effectively it created this atmosphere 
Um, I, I might look at a game like Crimson Peak and a, a, game, a movie like Crimson Peak. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, yes, exactly. Uh, a movie like Crimson Peak and understand its kind of game lineage. Obviously, it's taking from gothic horror of, of you know, a certain century's art, uh, illustrated art, but it's drawing from movies from early 20th century. But I do think there's a there's a game element to Crimson Peak. We're going to enter this room. We're going to move around here. We're going to creep up the stairs in a certain... There's almost camera maneuvers that I more associate with video games than I would... Or the, the first-person perspective of, like, walking down this hallway and seeing something kind of creep through or watching something in the corner and just having your eyes shifting in that way that feels more game-like. And, you know, Guillermo del Toro was trying to make a Silent Hill uh, game, actually, for quite some time. And I don't think there's a coincidence that Crimson Peak was born maybe from that. Oh man. And the, uh, the demo that he made with Hideo Kojima PT, which was going to be a Silent Hills, sort of like the, the demo for the Silent Hills game is scarier than almost any horror movie. I mean, again, because of that interactive element, but it's such a brilliant concept that you could actually port anyway. Well, that's because uh, Crimson Peak cinematic... was a uh, gothic romance and was not yeah. intended to be scary. But his, <laughs> his, uh, cinematic genius, what there may or may not be of it, was so much more effectively applied to that demo than it has been to any of his actual movies ever. Uh, and so, again, again, the talents, I think, are as fluid as the ideas for these things. Uh, how about a really specific example, and you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, just thinking of things that look like video games I played, that famous hammer hallway fight <laughs> in Old Boy, where the camera kind of tracks along from left to right as the character makes progress along the screen. Like, that looks like Super Mario Brothers. That's a diss, but no, no, but like might no, be onto something. no, I mean it's it's okay. It didn't look. It's a. I think it's a great scene, but it uses the same language of like character moving from left to right across the screen and the camera moving along with it um, to show forward progress. Like I mean, it might have existed before then, but it makes me think of how a video game worked at that point. You're talking purely about like sort of the linear progression of something like Mario. Yeah, exactly. Like how right. the camera moving from left to right across the screen, like is like them telling you about the forward progression of whatever is happening like right like somehow the two-dimensionality of video of earlier video games or video yeah. games for so and long think, uh, somehow the key bled to that into movies. is that in in mario in some of the marios at least you can't go backwards and i think that temporal element is uh you know a staple of cinema which yeah you can rewind it i suppose but i mean like really watching it um as as it was intended i mean once you inch forward on the screen you can't go back you were in that moment you have uh, I think that that is sort of representative of the experience of watching a movie, in in an abstract sense, at least. Um, and then, of course, you jump in the cloud and get the warp whistle, and you go to straight to World Eight, and you can beat the game in a few minutes. That's but, how. Uh, that's uh, how, only that's movies how work that that's way. That's how old boy ends, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If only Adam Sandler's uh, pixels could have worked that way. Yeah, uh, and yeah, old boy. That old boy hallway scene, Katie, is a great example of what you're talking about, and I, I think that um, the language that was available to Park Chan Wook to shoot that would not have been possible if not for video games. I, I think that it, it's just, I guess if, I'm, if I have any point to make about this at all, and I may not, it's that uh, d- reducing any of these mediums, particularly like a newer, supposedly lesser one, like video games, to one thing, to one aesthetic, to say like, as much as I feel like it's accurate to say that Hardcore Henry is a, feels, like a, feels like a video game, because it does, because that's its entire point, uh, video games are too vast, they have too much to offer, there is, in my opinion, too much art in them to be that simply and cleanly sort of being like, this is a video game movie, this is uh, an important over. There's, there's more that we can take from them 
we can take from them to the film world as much as the film world is, as much as they have taken from the film world. Yeah. Anyway. Do I'll better be especially, than Hardcore Henry. Yeah, I'll be especially interested if smaller movies can find something in games. And I think of a movie like Creative Control, which obviously has a game-ish element uh, embedded into its story with virtual reality. But I also think that there's something like mobile game-ish about it or Sims-like about it. Just the functionality of its filmmaking seems very game-like to me. And if you're not familiar with this movie, it's a small little indie movie. Uh, what am I? What do I need to tell people about Creative Control, David? Um, we never really talked about it. It is about uh, augmented reality. It is about... Devices uh, of life getting lost. and uh, Yeah, I mean, well, literally, it's about a pair of glasses that put like a second screen over uh, like, you know, like a very advanced form of Google Glass that allows you to see people's names and best based off facial recognition and their uh, imagined sort of VR sex things and like really get under their skin and, and um, get glean as much information about them as you can find over the internet and as the user can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and that, there's just you know, a lot of like interactivity in it too, yes. where and that's not something that's going to come to movies, at least. I, well, I don't think it will ever come to movies uh, in the, in the form that we know them, maybe in virtual reality when that starts kind of blending together, but I don't think we'll get straight interactivity in our big screen moving pictures, but there's, you feel like you're making the choices right behind this main character. There's a scene in the movie where he's kind of like juggling three conversations on video screens and augmented reality screens at once. And it's so crazy. And that feels like one of these kind of indie mini games that are about real life, but they still have a game. They're gamified. And I don't know that that was a, I, I, I felt drawn into the movie in that way, in a, in a, that reminded me of like playing something on my iPhone or something. But um, yeah, creative control. I would highly recommend that. And now we should wrap up because there are more video game movies coming like Warcraft where they're actually going to play. There's, there's a whole PVP element it teased in the latest trailer. That's what people are really excited about Warcraft, that uh, it takes what people played in the uh, Warcraft games and puts it right there on screen. Oh, boy. Orcs versus humans. Katie, get excited. I'm so, yeah. Warcraft is uh, so up my alley, guys. I can't, I can't even contain my excitement. I'll wait for Assassin's Creed, which has my vague, vague intrigue. How about that? Why does it have your vague intrigue? Uh, because, I don't know, Michael Fassbender is interesting, the director is interesting, and I don't know, it seems like a story that could translate to the screen. Does it? Do you know what that shit's about? Uh, yeah, it's like a guy who t- travels through time and, like, uh, uh, does assassinations. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, you're, you, got, you got the dumb part down. The whole time travel thing is really, in my mind, very dumb. But we'll, I like time we'll travel. See if it works. like time we'll travel. see if it plays. Can't be as bad. Hey, you know what? I gotta be hopeful for Warcraft. I played it. Job's done. <laughs> I'll never forget my mom leaning over to me during the Warcraft trailer before Star Wars, which is the only movie I've seen with her in years, and going like, what? <laughs> I think the quote was, that looks like an abomination. <laughs> <laughs> so your mom wrong. is actually the harshest critic in the Ehrlich families. Oh, no, she isn't, but she and I couldn't agree more on that one. Whoa. I'm on my knees Unworthy
that does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. We will not be back with a review since we already talked about the boss. So, you know. We talked about Hardcore Henry, too. We did yeah, two movies. And Creative Control, which is in theaters. There's a lot. So, uh, so See it all. We'll, uh, we'll be back with uh, more regular episodes next week. And with Dave. Dave, we miss you this week. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. And we'll probably talk about Jungle Book next week, I would assume. I am Matt Patches. I'm the entertainment editor of Thrillist.com. And I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can share the episodes or you can leave comments or and we'll probably read them. Or you can, uh, I don't know, play a game like Hardcore Henry. I don't No, you can't. That's a lie. But still go to fightinginthewarroom.com. Uh, I am David Ehrlich. I am, uh, as of this week, the no longer Rolling Stone. I am now the senior film critic at IndieWire. Yay! Congratulations, David! So, thanks. So critic from go. Camp Rectum himself. Camp Rectum! Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't obsessively <laughs> check up on the madness of Jeff Wells, uh, Camp Rectum is a reference to a post uh, about me on Hollywood Elsewhere this evening. I would highly advise you to go and read it. But after you do that, or you know, maybe before, why don't you find all of us together on Fighting in the War Room on Facebook. Facebook. It's what's for dinner. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm Katie Rich. I'm on VanityFair.com. Still doing the same thing. No new job for me. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And all of us are on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can talk to us about all kinds of things or just answer this week's lightning round question. What was it? It was in honor of Demolition, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie. What is an actually good middle-aged white guy finding himself movie? Uh, there is one. Uh, yeah, please send us your submissions. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Darling, if you hear the sirens, I hope you find a charm. I'll be out in the